This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 24th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. As you take what may be another long drive this holiday week, consider OPEC. Or rather, don't consider OPEC. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries is imbued by American politicians as having immense power to control the price of oil and throw the lives of Americans into flux. Cato's David Kemp and Peter Van Doren in their new paper say it's vastly overstated. We spoke last week. Peter, I can remember in the 80s hearing about this group OPEC, and they struck me as all-powerful because everybody in America cared a great deal about OPEC and what role they would play in setting prices for oil. And it seemed like there was a lot of consternation over what OPEC might do next. And that seems like their reputation. Is that a fair characterization of what they represent, at least to the American public? Yes. I mean, I was a teenager in the 70s and the oil shock hit when I wanted to drive more and as a 16-year-old. And that was, I mean, and I worked in a gas station the summer of 73. (laughs) It was the most unpleasant experience of my life because tourists from New Jersey would come up to northern New York to fish in Lake Ontario. Gasoline had gone from 30 or 26.9 cents a gallon up into the 30s, and you thought the world had ended. There were customers spit on me and yelled at me. And I worked at a Hess gas station in a little white uniform and when you still had people pumping gas like I did. So, yeah, OPEC was thought to be all-powerful and had ruined... Uh, American life as we know it, revolving around driving and and gasoline. And the implications of accepting that status that OPEC has, at least in the minds of Americans, accepting that certainly has implications for U.S. foreign policy. I mean, we might not like to admit it, but to the extent that politicians believe that OPEC has a great deal of power that might influence their decisions with dealing with those states. Exactly. I mean, we need to keep them in line, as it were, and intervene when necessary in the Middle East so that the creature comforts of American driving continue. And we, as I said, I grew up with that, and my entire adult life has been spent studying and thinking about it. And this new paper that David and I have produced tries to deal with it in a long perspective, you know, over what's gone on over the last 40 or 50 years. So, David, big picture, what did you learn about this supposed power of OPEC? Well, overall, we learned that the perception of OPEC's control over oil price is probably exaggerated. We learned that there are a good deal of constraints on OPEC's ability to easily adjust the amount of oil that they produce and that there are constraints on OPEC nations' willingness and ability to invest in increasing the amount of oil wells they drill and the amount of the percentage of their oil reservoirs that they actually extract every year. And in practice, OPEC nations don't really follow their quotas very closely. And uh, if you look at the production profiles of some of the most stable key OPEC nations, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates, that their 
production profile over the last three decades actually looks strikingly similar to the production profile of the United States. And not to get into an economics lesson, but there is one here that it's hard to enforce the rules of a cartel. Yeah. So traditionally, Saudi Arabia is viewed as the enforcer of the official OPEC quotas. In practice, it's not clear that Saudi Arabia or any other OPEC nations are motivated to enforce those quotas. And it's not clear that there's any sort of systemic enforcement. In fact, OPEC doesn't even have the ability or the mechanisms in place to monitor the actual output of each of its members. So just to enforce the quotas, first, they would need to be actually uh, keeping tabs on what each member is producing, and they don't even do that. And if the goal is to maintain high prices and put out relatively less oil and take advantage of the high prices that you have caused, that's an enormous temptation for the members of your cartel to cheat. Yeah, I mean, we, the data we discovered is that on average, OPEC members cheat, and they do because of exactly what Caleb said, which is <laughs> you can make a lot of money by cheating. Cartels are, are, require cooperation, and in economics, you learn about the prisoner's dilemma game, and in effect, OPEC proves that game is an accurate depiction of reality because they defect from the cooperative game that they think they're playing. Everyone defects and cheats all the time, and we have the data in our paper strikingly show that. So that's one problem with the claim that OPEC is some sort of monolith of oil price control. What are some of the other problems with this idea that OPEC is this extremely powerful entity? Well, I think one thing I'd like to say, going back to the introduction where we talked about the, the so-called oil shocks of, of the early 70s, is that the public, most people have a misunderstanding of the role that the embargo played in the gas lines that are shown every time when an OPEC meeting has an announcement. The economics literature is quite clear that the embargo didn't really reduce supplies to the United States. They got rearranged a bit. Uh, actually, there was an article in the Washington Post yesterday which described in great detail how <laughs> the current embargo on Russian oil is also being circumvented by, in effect, shipping oil around and avoiding uh, the, the Russian ownership in which it started out. And so the same thing happened uh, in the 70s. The gas lines were the result of the Nixon oil price controls, which everyone somehow seems to forget. And so uh, that's one big component of our paper is that to try to rearrange the narrative that journalists have about the 70s, the gas lines of the 70s were the result of the Nixon oil price control program rather than OPEC constraining supplies and preventing the West from having access. One other element here of the supposed power of OPEC to set or at least have an outsized influence over the price of oil is the, the notion that oil as a product can be just turned off and turned back on. That seems to be a pretty powerful realization when you have to understand what it actually takes to get oil out of the ground into a tanker to a refinery and then redistributed out to uh, retail sales locations. Yes. Yeah, so one of the major 
limitations we found is that whereas the general sort of widespread view of OPEC and Saudi Arabia in particular is that they control a uh, quote unquote oil spigot where they can just turn on or turn off their oil production. We found that that depiction is not accurate, that there are significant constraints on OPEC and any country's ability to easily, you know, overnight increase how much oil they're producing or even decrease how much oil they're producing. And those constraints are based on the geology and on basic problems of petroleum engineering. So even if Saudi Arabia wanted to, you know, in very short term periods, adjust their output to try and control price, that comes with substantial trade-offs. So another element here is that, you know, oil prices go up or down depending on various factors. And given the length of the supply chains of oil from the ground to retail sales, it seems very difficult for OPEC to, with any kind of confidence, predict what their decision today is going to mean for prices in a few months. Agreed. What people don't realize is how the in, the world inventory for petroleum is somewhere in the 25 to 30 day range. Because supply is rather much more fixed than people realize in the way that David just described, right? The decision to drill and then to produce is much more of a yes-no decision than a how-much decision. So once wells are producing, the output is rather constant. And thus, supply is inelastic in the short run, and then demand is fairly inelastic in the short run. So what varies a lot in the short run to equilibrate supply and demand are prices. And that's what the public doesn't like. I mean, the public seems to be very affected by, by gasoline prices, and they, the popularity of the president and the Congress go up and down with oil prices. And what our paper talks about is that this blaming OPEC kind of game, even though it's not really real, it's very important in politics because it's hard for officials in the United States to tell the public, you know, get a grip. There's not much we can do. It, the good news is prices vary, and that's what allows there to be supply at the pump at all. If prices didn't change, we'd have a glut or we'd have a shortage. But outside of Cato, people don't tend to get elected by saying, oh, it's really good that prices vary a lot and, and cause what normally is perceived as pain. So instead, we have this blame OPEC kind of politics that David and I talk about in the paper. In fact, the thing I'd add is that if you don't allow prices to vary, that's what creates the shortages and the lines at the gas stations and rationing of gasoline. David Kemp and Peter Van Doren are authors of the new Cato paper, Misperceptions of OPEC Capability and Behavior. It's available now. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please. And thank you for listening. <laughs>